Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. 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 We actually recorded this as podcast number five before the 2019 season launch podcast, but we decided that it was more important to edit and get that one out first. So every time we say number five in this or number six in that or vice versa, uh, it's the other way around. Oh God, it's all—it's just completely... Storm weather. Why does the thunder have... What, is it, what does she say? I don't know. Um, why does it do that? Well, the lightning says something to the thunder and, and the, the thunder, thunder answers, answers back. back. But, but why, why does, does it have to answer, answer so loud? Oh, yeah, that's what she says. Blue, 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 Next question. Welcome back. Hello, internet world humans. How are you? Welcome back. We are here. We're in Sydney today. It's very muggy. Uh, I'm Charles Sanders. The city is mugging us. Do you have a name? The rain. Hello, I'm Eliza. <laughs> and this is episode five. When we've done when we've done this many again, we will have done ten. Oh god, I just woke up from a nap. Sorry, I might. She'll get better. It might take a little while. Charlie recently said that I nap more than anyone he knows, which I think is surprising it's, because I only nap three times a day. It's definitely true. That's three times a day in addition to an overnight sleep, guys. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of naps. Um, That's a lie. What we wanted to do today is talk a little bit about a book that we both recently read, one that we haven't yet mentioned on the podcast, called Sapiens by a fantastic interdisciplinary Israeli academic called Yuval Noah Harari. Which is the best name ever. It is a Mostly really the reason I enjoyed reading the book is because when people said, what are you reading? I could say Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah, it's a good name. It's also a really good book. Um, It's a couple of years old now, uh, a few years old now, and he has two follow-ups called Homo Deus and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. But my, having read all of them now, my impression is that Sapiens is the most revelatory, I think, of the three. Um, And also, Eliza hasn't read the other two, so we can't talk about those. Uh, But she will, and then maybe we'll talk about them later. Yeah. We're not we're not um, revolutionary in thinking this book is good either. Loads of people have been going on about it for like a number of years. I just only got on the bandwagon now, so we can only talk about it now. Yeah, but I also think that I think that the thing that we might have something interesting to say about it uh, on is perhaps how it relates to how the content of the book relates to you know our arts and arts practice and and ideas of creativity and that kind of stuff, you know? Maybe maybe we won't. Maybe we'll just crap on about it. Well, no, I think those are exactly the things that we should be talking about um, because those are the things that we know about. So, synopsis? Yeah, tell us a bit about what it's actually about, Eliza. It's a, it's a brief history of humankind <coughs> from the beginning of when humans came into existence um, until now with some speculation for the future and it goes through four different sections, the first being the cognitive revolution, the second the agricultural re- revolution, the third the unification of humankind, and the fourth the scientific revolution. It's one, of the, it's one of those weird books that I felt like I read and every sentence I was like, oh, but of course, I've known this my whole life. But then if someone said, even like a quarter of a page, if someone was like, what's that about? I'd be like, oh, I don't know, China, and also the, the million years ago, and also, did you know that, okay, this is one of the things that <laughs> prompted me a little bit to read it, was that when Salesy was talking about it on Chat 10 Look 3, she said that it's the kind of book that every on every page there is something that you want to turn to the person next to you and say, oh my god, did you know? Yeah, totally. Which was 100% the truth of the, almost every single page. The way that I have described this book to a couple of people that I've encouraged to read it is as follows. It's like... You knew when you opened the book, when you got given the book, you knew what an egg was, what flour was, what milk was, what sugar was, and you knew what a cake was, but until opening the book you had no idea how a cake was made. And then somebody gave you a a book of cake recipes, and you read them and you were like, oh my god, totally revelatory of how this, this turns into this. Yeah, and how like how how things that we completely take for granted as existing in the world come to be, but on big things like 
money and religion and, you know, the nature of a company, quote unquote. Yeah, for the last year, Charlie's been throwing around this term. Intersubjective reality. Intersubjective realities. And every time he says it, I'm like, blah, 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 blah. I don't really know what you're talking about. And now I'm like, oh my God, there's so many intersubjective realities all around the world. And they're basically the things that exist that don't exist. Good. Well, that was a very clear description. So end of podcast. Sorry. A minute ago, I said, did you know? And then I got sidetracked by my own tangent. What I was going to say is, did you know that before humans came into Australia, there was 19 species of megafauna that became extinct within like the first hundred or something years that humans were in Australia. And they, they were like giant sloths and cool like giant marsupials, which I think is almost more exciting than giant mammals. Because I was, you think of marsupials as being like, I don't know, small and weird and fluffy also I just marsupial is a funny word but there were giant marsupials at one point I don't know if other people knew that I definitely did not know that or I had forgotten that which is very likely because I forget almost everything but there's a picture in here of these giant sloths climbing up a tree and I just think oh there's already already the natural world just totally blows my fucking noodle like I went snorkeling the other day and it was like not even a really great snorkeling spot but actually it was really incredible we saw like a pod of about a hundred dolphins just went went by really really close to us like the closest one was only like three or four meters away anyway it just got me thinking about dolphins and how weird they are and then that got me thinking about all the other sea creatures and how weird they are also on the way to sydney we played 20 questions and i was trying to get mum and charlie to figure out what a seahorse was and it took ages because what even is a seahorse it's so weird anyway so there's lots of crazy creatures many of them are in the ocean which is one of the things that he covers because humans haven't populated the oceans in the same way that they populated the land and that's why there's more cool creatures left in the ocean because we haven't been able to extinct them yet yes that was good language of the using and very good talking eliza oh but just like so many feelings oh so many feelings when i was reading this book about like regrets of all of the things that have disappeared because of humans which is something that i often feel anyway but i don't know this kind of book put that into context that like we didn't mean to fuck everything up but we did but but i think one of the things that's really interesting and great about the book is that it puts that stuff into context in a variety of ways one of the things that i think he shows really clearly is that for every gain there is a loss you know like yeah for and through dominance humans have made lots of gains that are gains for us but that are losses in other ways losses for other species or losses for the the diversity of the you know eco landscape or whatever and i suppose that was always my perspective that i was most keenly aware of hence why i've always been a bit like oh technology i don't know i don't want to know about the advances in it because first of all it scares me because i don't understand it and second of all i think that the only inevitable thing that it will definitely do is destroy other things but the way that he speaks about those things has kind of enabled me to see both the light and the dark in it and how they influence each other Mm. and I think the other thing that he's really good at doing is without drawing cultural equivalences he is able to hold the human race accountable the whole human race accountable for a variety of phenomena that we have kind of fairly arbitrarily and through and through quirks of history tended to blame certain smaller groups for you know like we look from an early 21st century perspective we look out into the world and we say well religious fundamentalism is predominantly the the realm of in the recent past extremist christians in the kind of midterm recent past and now extremist muslims in the very recent past and he's able to look back and go, well, you know, that has been the purview of all of humanity across various points of history. And similarly, I think we have a sense that the destruction of various elements of the eco-landscape, of the ecosystem, is pretty is fairly predominantly the purview of kind of imperialist Westerners. And, you know, that, idea, that example of the megafauna in Australia is a really great example of how it was hunter-gatherers. It was hunter-gatherers, or, you know, it was, hunt- it was, it was the earliest Australian Indigenous people that actually forced many of these species into um, extinction, which is not to blame them inordinately, but is to go, 
the nature of humanity is that we are, you know, both constructive and destructive, and we've done that in just a whole. And that all of throughout all of the iterations of history, no human has actively sought to be destructive, like consciously. Yeah, or it's very very rare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It made me quite because I am <laughs> conscious of within myself and with others the the habit to uh, romanticize the past. Yeah, so he talks about certain histories at certain points, certain moments in history. Cultures have been run by people who have variously looked towards the future and looked towards the past and that until very recently almost all almost all cultures harked back to the past as being a time that was better that we should kind of and recapture, which is not the prevailing ideology of today, but it is the prevailing ideology of my brain. So it was interesting to um, see. I'm really interested in that because I don't, I don't have a, any personal feeling like that. Maybe I'm more a product of our times or something, but I have no nostalgia for the past, and I, I I'm, I'm interested to understand why you Different do. Different people have like, nostalgia. Yeah. Oh, I loved being a kid. It was awesome. All these great things happened. I don't know. I, um... Well, maybe, I mean, maybe that is legitimately a substantial part of it. Like, I did not love being a kid. Yeah. I probably liked my life until I was, like, seven or eight. And then I started liking it again when I was, like, 16. Yeah. Maybe, and that could seriously be, like, a major contributing factor. Yeah, I don't know. I suppose like there's something about feels like it was simpler times. I mean, I guess I was still kind of overwhelmed by lots of things and anxious when I was a kid, but I guess I forget about those things because they seem from externally like less worrisome things than what I have to worry about now. Mm. Um and do you but you're I mean you're talking about nostalgia for the past past like Oh, like well, period yeah. dramas and that sort of stuff too. Like yeah, I suppose. Well, I think there's kind of I think the sense of knowing what the order is and knowing where things fit and where where people go in society and stuff. Like obviously, I don't like I don't love the idea of being a scullery maid, but I feel like there's a certain amount of anxiety that a scullery maid would not have to deal with because she like if she was resigned to it. And this book, this book has been. I mean, intellectually, like I know that women have never been in as good a position as they are now, but I suppose I've never computed that. I've always... I mean, I have computed that. Oh, God. I feel like I'm really not um, no, able to articulate this. It's one of those things, though, isn't it? Where you go, I knew this in a kind of... I computed it. I knew it in a kind but of... But when I read this book, I went, oh, that's what it was like for women. Yeah, like you, you, know? have, a, you have a sense of the experience of yeah. that. And like, you know that until only so super recently, women were essentially not seen as humans around the world and they were just the property of men but then there's something about the way he writes that I was like oh my god mm. in all of human history until so so recently women weren't seen as humans and most women didn't see themselves as humans because of how society approached that and, and that kind of makes me go oh I guess it would probably be pretty shit to be a scholarly maid <laughs> Whereas in the past, it was like, you get to wear cool outfits, and, like, I think that there's something about the... Again, it's just... I just keeps coming back to the overwhelmingness of being able to constantly be able to access information and people, and, like, I don't know, just having spent five days down the coast without internet, like, and just the the, abil- the ability of my brain to be able to just focus on one thing mm. in that time, and just to, to over the five days that the becoming content with whatever task I chose to do and being able to sit in that for a few hours like I feel like increasingly in the last few years I'm not able to do that because I'm constantly like even when I got back from the coast I hadn't quite finished reading Sapiens and I knew that I really loved it and I wanted to finish reading it before I got to New Zealand because I didn't want to take the big fat heavy book and it's not mine and blah 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 and I was at home back at mum's house where there's great internet and I had 20 minutes between finishing something and having to leave to go to something else and I was like oh what can I do with this 20 minutes and my brain like I I went oh I could pick up sapiens and I got a little bit excited by that idea because I'd been really enjoying it and that's what I'd been doing every 10 minutes at the coast when I didn't 
you know, decided I wanted to go for a swim or whatever. But instead I picked up my phone and I scrolled through Instagram and I was like, you don't like scrolling. It's making you more overwhelmed. It's making you more stressed. It's making you more anxious. It's making you compare your lives to other people. You're not learning anything. And for the whole 10 minutes, I was conscious that I wasn't enjoying that thing, but it's like this addiction had pulled me in and I was conscious of being in that addiction. I suppose there's just this sense that like the, the regimentedness of the lifestyle like I, I hark for a time when there's less choice. Mm. <laughs> Having said that, if I really had to confront my life without choice, I'd be like, "Fuck you! Give me back my choice." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing that's that's such a catch twenty two. Everyone bitches and moans about the over choice that we have and the and the the negative things that that fosters. The you know the information glut that no one can sort through information anymore, and and these feelings of anxiety and over choice and all of that stuff. But I think that the only past models of societies that we have that didn't have that choice, also they lacked that choice through lacking liberty. Yeah. You know, and there's, there is a difference between choice and liberty. You know, like you can have a you can have a liberal society where people have more limited choices by virtue of not having access to as much stuff and yeah. as much information. I mean, I think that you know, Singapore is one of those really interesting examples of like a benevolent dictatorship where the society have limited choice about a, a, a lot of stuff but they have but because the dictator is benevolent people are relatively happy and they feel relatively liberated you know well and also that was the really interesting thing about the the revolution in Egypt the yeah. really recent one yeah 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 They're like um, the Arab Spring the Arab Spring yeah that that the conditions in Egypt at that time were that were better than they had ever been in Egypt in all of history but because there was the United States to compare it to they revolted in a bigger way than they ever had before because there's that comparison you know that yeah well and it's a comparison between different types of values different things that are values so you know it was all well and good to have your material circumstances increasing and getting better in Egypt until you know we had mass global communication and then what caused that revolution was it was a democratic revolution you know it was about yeah. it was about having a voice not just having greater material circumstances but having a voice in the way your country is run and managed and that's where the arab one of the things he talks about at some depth is that you know it's interesting that the arab spring essentially started as a democratic revolution in a lot of these countries, of course, that's now been flipped on its head in a whole range of different ways. One of the ones, oh, I don't, there's like three tangents, th not tangents, but there's three tracks I want to go on here. <laughs> Too many tangents. The first, oh, okay, let's go on this one first. The first one is the idea that all values are only and purely this thing of, of being into subjective realities. And we're really willing to accept that about our values that other people hold. Hmm. But we're really terrible at accepting it about things that we hold. And I think the one that I had never... I suppose it had never occurred to me to really look at it in this way is the idea of human rights. Yeah. Which is such an incredibly recent invention mm. that never existed before. You know, but was, I suppose, just old enough that our generation would have experienced a world without it. You know, that yeah. it, was, it was first invented, essentially, post-Second World War yeah. and... And it took a, a generation for it to properly take hold and then our parents, it was assumed knowledge for our parents and thus we've never seen a world that mm. didn't have it as like an intrinsic value. Mm. But that there is nothing, nothing at all intrinsic about that as a value and that those rights are only inalienable. Inalienable or inalienable? One of those two. <laughs> <laughs> those rights are only not aliens. Because they don't so become in peace and have big antennas on their heads and one eyeball. <laughs> They're only that thing because society in general agrees that they are. Yeah, I think that would. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the thing that made me like, oh, holy fuck. <laughs> but it's so. But it's so hard then to see outside of your own. Like I, this book and the subsequent books, which are more about the future, they make me think a lot about new, different ethical models and values models that we could have. It made me incredibly cognizant of how completely programmed we are to be a product of, of the cultures in which we were brought up because I can't think of like any thing that I thought of and I had some really innovative ideas in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep but they all still rested on this basic tenet that human rights of human existed. rights that yeah. human rights exist yeah which I mean compared to past ethical frameworks I think that's a pretty damn good thing yeah. but I was completely unable to think of anything 
you know, like that wasn't yeah. inside that framework. Yeah. Well, and it was not like, like that. Yeah, you also feel like you're contradicting yourself. Well, that's exactly what he says right at the end that when people make sci fi, they essentially just do stories of now in different. in Like with weird cone heads. Yeah. And, <laughs> and stuff. And yeah. laser guns. Yeah. But actually, no one could have predicted 20 years ago that this would be how we would communicate and what we would value and, you know. Mm. So, one of the things I wanted to. What were the other two tenets? Yeah, the other two tenets. Well, one of them is kind of the second phase of that thing, which is, if that's true, um, I, I have... The gods are angry at you. They say that's not true. Well, uh, that, there, are no, there are no gods. There, there are only intersubjective realities among intersubjective other people that aren't us. <laughs> if all of our values are, you know, purely intersubjective and, and there's no intrinsic value to anything, um, which, you know, I think if you investigate it for long enough, you have to accept to be the truth. I'm interested in the link between human rights as a value or our current values, kind of liberal value system, and the industry and the world in which we work, which is the arts. Because there are readings of liberalism, you know, as far as like liberty, security, responsibility, basic human rights, that don't, you don't need the arts to play into those things and there are versions of liberal basic liberalism uh, especially capitalist liberalism that see the arts as a luxury that only those who you know are able to build enough wealth should have access to America is a fairly good example even though they've got the you know National Endowment for the Arts and a few other programs they essentially don't have government funding for the arts and they live in a world in which the arts is considered much more a luxury than say here and then on the flip side my, I think a lot of liberals, like uh, small L liberal liberals as opposed to classical liberals, like left liberals, suggest that kind of access to the arts and culture is like a basic human right in and of itself. Where... Can you explain the difference between those two different types of liberal? Oh, like liberal in the, like, a, the old-fashioned official sense of liberty, democracy, the basic premise of like liberalism as a philosophy of humankind which everyone pretty much in the west is at the moment mm. even the right-wing parties are basically liberal they're kind of capitalist liberal mm. or in scandinavia they're kind of social democratic liberal we're somewhere in between blah 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 but it's all a, a version of liberalism and then there's like what we think of as liberals in the local political sense like the left yeah do you know what i mean yeah yeah so but which like it's so, not the liberal party in australia no which is a third piece of confusing because they're actually the more conservative party which you all know, because you are mostly Australian. But if you're not, now you know. But left liberals tend to make this kind of argument that culture is a, is a right, and not draw the link. I, I've never heard a really cogent argument of... Why culture is a right. Why culture is a right in this kind of liberalism human rights, like classical liberalism human rights sense. Because quality of life. It's just assumed. Yeah, yeah, but there are lots of other ways to have quality of life. You know, like, what is it intrinsically about about the arts and culture that makes it integral to that project of liberalism? It's not that I've never heard a cogent argument about it. It's just very, very rare. Yeah. I mean, my response to that is, ah, I don't know the answer. But I know that for me, arts is the most important thing for quality of life. So surely it must be for at least some other people. Is that a good, is that a good argument? <laughs> not really. I don't know. I don't think it... I don't think it draws the link. I think. Well, I mean, I think I think we need to. I don't know. I think we need to look into what the arts facilitates. Hmm. I'm looking at this picture of a monkey that they um, Harlow is orphaned monkey who they did an experiment when they put a monkey with a robot mum, which gave him milk, which was just metal, and then a mum which was soft and cuddly and fluffy and warm but didn't provide any nourishment and he would still always spend his time with the fluffy soft nourishing mum and just go to the robot for the things he needed to survive so actually there's something in that about evolutionarily and biologically animals don't just need to survive they need the support and care and loving structures of their 
communities and their families and their physical connections and stuff like that. And for me, that's what the arts is about fostering in a lot of ways. Not the only, it's not the only function of the arts, but that's a really mm. clear one. That was my takeaway from what. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that that one of the things we we're really good at knowing people need certain kinds of security and not others. And I think that that's that idea that you need kind of a degree of emotional security is an important a facet of the arts and other kind of cultural entities that well it's interesting coming from our point of view as well because actually i i personally think that the arts generally but also my choice to be in the arts is about accessing and seeking a community of pe like-minded people who I can be with constantly, which essentially takes the place of religion, being people mm. who are, were raised completely secular. We don't, you know, I, I actually, I asked Dad only a few days ago if he regretted not taking us to church when we were kids, because he was taken to church when he was a kid. And he said, well, think about it this way, I wouldn't say that I regretted having to go to church when I was a kid. <laughs> so he didn't really answer the question, you know, and then, and then he said essentially that, that it was such a, a, a good way to connect to community in a broader network of people and one of I think the saddest things about the end of this book is recognizing that although all of these amazing things and this capacity for freedom and movement and all of these things which I absolutely cherish have come from the globalization of the world that essentially the the family and the small communities that banded together to make things possible have disintegrated in the last 50 years mm. and that is something that I am seeking by working in the arts, is to find actually a small community that is located globally that I can feel safe with and rely on and who I can share a, a perspective of the world. There's a limit to how many people you can identify with. Yeah, yeah. There's a few little things in there. One of them is you say, unfortunately, the structure of the family has broken down. Well, that might be unfortunate for a lot of people. It would be unfortunate if our particular family broke down you know because it's a nice supportive family it's unfortunate for people who have had happy family experiences and strong supportive families but I actually just contest that family is a universally positive thing I think that you know families are really troubling and problematic things and the capacity to the, the liberated capacity to leave your family and still be relatively well protected by the state and be able to create new family structures and stuff is incredibly important for the liberation of people who don't have happy families, who are rejected by their families for mm. things like their sexuality, you know, or for just their 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 interests and their lifestyle. I know. suppose there's, I mean, there's, some, there's something innate in that which you haven't recognised, which is the concept of individualism, that you are valuable as an entity in yourself, not just as something that services... A greater role or something like that which is which is part of I think why I have a bit of nostalgia for the past because you know my nostalgia is assuming that I would be born into a role that I would feel relatively fit for mm. <laughs> you know and again I, it comes back to that not having choice thing yeah but, but I think that that, that is the, that is exactly what I'm saying is I, I totally appreciate that thing of being in service to um, the the culture because I have chosen like you I have chosen the arts as a thing to mm. be in service to in that cultural way and that I do feel like in our personal family to be a part of being of that family unit that's a very positive thing and something that we work as a family like a you know our parents and our siblings yeah but I think when I'm talking about family I'm talking about family and community and the 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 section where he talks about how in the past the state didn't have that much power because most things were kind of sorted out within the immediate the immediate realm of say up to 200 people and everyone kind mm. of knew everyone within that so and so like you know if if a child was sick then the person next door would would help the child to get better and you know a kind of thing of shared favors because they're people that you know and respect and care for in some capacity not necessarily your actual immediate family mm. but your, your yeah, community yeah. whereas now everything is a commodity so people can get left behind because they don't come from those structures. And I think there is something but good I, about being able to seek new structures that you fit in, that you mm. do feel more at home in if you do come from other. But uh, I think we kind of went past a point where maybe we could have had both or something, that you could choose to kind of 
disappear and fuck off, but that those units would still, you know, and that would be hard. I actually, I actually wonder if the two are mutually exclusive. Like, I don't. I wonder if you can live in a world where it's it's safe and healthy and normal to move from those units if you are oppressed by them and for those units to maintain their... Like, I, I, I actually yeah, think the two not. things might be mutually exclusive. But having said that, I think it might be mutually exclusive for society to be principally made up of those units. But I don't think it's impossible or mutually exclusive for there to be a society where we foster a variety of versions of those units, both family-style communities like there were in the past, if people so choose, but also commune-style communities like there were in the 50s and 60s, if people so choose that. And, you know, queer families and families that live across generations and, and groups of friends that live together in kind of semi-cohabitating arrangements, as happens in has been happening in kind of big cities since kind of the 70s and 80s in, in some situations, that in a world where there is a state baseline, we can encourage people in the next generations and the next generation and our generation to create those quote-unquote families quote-unquote communities mm. in a variety of ways and encourage people to take greater responsibility and care for supporting each other in you know through a whole variety of social programs and you know whatever those might be without removing the social safety net of the state, but encouraging people to be less and less dependent on it. Yeah, you know what I, mean? I think that the the fact of individualism gets in the way of that. That there has to be a little there has to be a bit of compromise. People have to come back from going, I can be and deserve to try to access my best in everything. You know, mm. there has to be some kind of feeling of obligation to give back to that community. Yeah. And to a smaller community, not just to the whole of economics so mm. that, you know, you can you know, not to just to have a job because that's what society says, that so that you can support yourself. To be passionate about the giving back to something, and without obligation, how do you build that passion? Unless, like us, you're lucky to find yourself in an industry which is small, and you know, it also, I mean, on an on a whole other level, it kind of makes me go. I would have assumed that my kind of ultimate goal for the future is, oh, everyone feels and loves and respects the arts as much as as I do. Um, and sees its value and its potential, but also it's it was a re-realizing of the fact of, you know, hardship. And I say that I say that very, <laughs> ironically, as on a spectrum of hardship. You know, <laughs> working in the arts is not really that, but that it's a choice that you have to actively work to be a bit different to how the rest of the world lives to be working in the arts, you know what I mean, that what fosters such a good community of people is that those people are all, it would be easier to live in another way. So it has to be only a few people that can live like that and we are bonded together by the fact that we are a minority. Yeah, I think that that is... Which is the same for queer people. Yeah, and, and also people in, you know, other specialised fields. I mean, physicists, will I'm sure, will band together in the same way because they're, uh, you know, they have things that they understand and vagaries. And, you know, I think that's true of lots of lots of small specialty mm. fields that have strong communities. I only bring up, bring up physicists because I know that that's true because mm. I've talked to a lot of them recently. But, you know, but I, I suppose that the majority of humans don't work in those kinds of fields. So that's what makes me a bit sad about the breakdown of family and community yeah i i wonder though if this is a this is a much bigger question maybe uh something that we're not even really equipped to talk about but i don't think we're equipped to talk about really any of these things so. well i don't know yeah we can wax lyrical but <laughs> but there, there is something in there about the kind of the changing nature of work like it used to be that people tended to work closer to their home more closely connected to their communities their work brought them into contact with those communities in a way and especially when it was in, in generations, like relatively recent generations, where predominantly women's work was predominantly household and community building work, mm. you know, like it was unpaid, but that was their job. Mm. And I think we're reaching a time now where, you know, we've gone from this place of having essentially, for some hundreds of years, we had one income households or subsistence households or whatever they might have been through a kind of little under 100 years of increasingly towards having two income households. And now we're going to get to a stage where work is going to become more and more, paperwork is going to become more and more scarce. So how do we re-foster 
those senses of community that are so strong that we think are so important and I think a lot of people think it's so important that we've lost some of perhaps part of the opportunity to do that is in going you're no longer you know in the western world going to be expected to do 40 hours of paid paid work a week for every adult or you know 90% of adults from the time you turn 20 until the time you retire at 65 or 70 when the opportunity for work dissipates through automation and all of that kind of stuff, what do we fill those hours with that we as a society see as valuable? Perhaps that is arts creation or, you know, community sports or whatever it might be, you know, but it's, I think we need to actively revalue those things in anticipation of work starting to disappear mm. because it will. It's already yeah. happening, you know. I wonder what the, what the connection to a community would have to do with people who acquire masses of wealth and their feeling of what to do with that you know like there's always been there's always been a a wealthy elite just as there is today but I wonder if there's uh well just a shifting perspective on how and why to share that money Mm. you know if someone came into the certain ways that people come into wealth and the feeling of rightfulness over that wealth is something that in the past would you'd be born into the aristocracy and blah 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 whatever but now people because again it comes back to individualism that you that everything that you get is because you deserve it as a person mm. is kind of the prevailing ideology rather than you being a product of all of the networks that support you and come together if i won the lottery for a million dollars i wouldn't feel obliged to share that money with the people around me I like to think that I would share some of it but I would still think this is mine you know like mm. I think there's certainly you could you could draw us perhaps tenuous but I'm sure there are people out there who could make it less tenuous in drawing a causal link between lack of community and uh, disproportionate kind of wealth accrual and people not putting that wealth back out into the world equally I think it's probably linked to the increasing politicization of our society Like, I think that nowadays, when very wealthy people or very wealthy institutions look to give back, I think they do look to give back, but they look to give back on a political level. And politics is partisan and tribal as well. You know, I think that a lot of that money ends up going to, you know, like when in the past, if one was the richest person in a small town in, you know, just pre-industrial or just post-industrial revolution England or wherever, one would feel a social obligation to give to the people of that town. You would might feel a social obligation to give to the poor of that town or person with a child with a disability or to the local institutions to make the institutions strong and good so that there was a community hall and there was a... You might feel obliged to give to the local community theatre group so that they could put on some Oscar Wilde for you, you know, um, and for other people at reasonable prices. But nowadays, people feel that responsibility to different kinds of tribes not so much the local town but for instance the Labour Party or the Liberal Party or the yeah, Democrats right. or the Republicans or for that matter so it's that those communities have shifted and morphed and become but not- also those communities they exist in the global society and the national society in a different way to the city and the town you know so the little town may be part of England or wherever but it's a it's an isolated community whereas the Democratic Party might in some ways feel like a city or a town to the to the people that are inside it but its intrinsic nature is to be adversarial to another big chunk of society yeah in a way that a city isn't yeah and i think that our job is to be to be for something by virtue of being against something else Mm. which i think and that maybe i think is a real virtue of the arts is that and this is probably an argument that it's worth us being able to make coherently Uh, so let me maybe get it try and get it right part of the value of the arts is that it is a community-based thing on a couple of levels one is that it is the people who are inside it are a strong cohesive community and that's important to us as as a community but what's important to the outside world is that we provide opportunities for local communities and or interest communities to come together and consolidate their communityhood through experiences. So whether it's Belvoir and the inner city Sydney community, or it's Bangara and the indigenous 
community of Sydney and other cities in Australia that they tour to, those arts and working, um, those arts institutions are providing ways for communities to come together in a non-adversarial way mm. with with themselves and perhaps across communities too. Yeah, but it's for know, something, not just by virtue of being against begin, something. Being against yeah. something else. But I think it's also worth pointing out and being really cognizant of the fact that for a national community, say, or a, or a state-based community or whatever, to have a strong appreciation for the positive influences of the arts, it's okay for, for artists and arts makers to have a much deeper understanding of the ins and outs of what it is we do and still having a society where the majority of the society sees it as a basic and intrinsic good that it is happening you know because i think what we have at the moment is we have a society where a lot of people go i find lots of art a bit wanky or a bit incomprehensible or i'm not interested in it doesn't seem to say anything to me now there are times when that's a problem but there's also a social good to say the sciences even when they're esoteric and out there and nobody really understands quantum physics or whatever but that then a technological innovation will come along that's based on all of that that benefits the whole of society. Mm. I think that there are many, many, many examples of how the arts does that. Whether it's disseminating from more niche to more mainstream art forms or whether it's disseminating from niche art forms through their audiences to other ways of engaging with community or whether it's disseminating right out of the arts. Yeah. And I think that that's an argument we need to be able to Into lifestyle make. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a thing that we need to be able to make much, much better. Because well, that's when it does start coming down to this stuff of of it being a human right to have... He talks a little bit... I'm going to jump to the other book now, but he talks a little bit in uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century about the fact that great new and interesting ideas don't come from the centre, they come from the fringe. Mm. The madness also all comes from the fringe, and that's why political leaders and, and those kinds of people can't be on the political fringe. They, they can't be on the fringe. They can't be muddling around, wasting time, thinking about conspiracy theories and madnesses and weird shit that goes on at the fringes. They have to be at the kind of, the, the kind of moderate centre of, of the ideas landscape. But artists are people that can be out on the, on the weird fringes, muddling around, and you, it, it's intrinsic that people out there like artists and physicists I don't know why I keep because physicists are a bit weird at the moment but you know we, we can be out on the fringes muddling around wasting <laughs> this is something which is like really, really incomprehensible and esoteric, yeah, and, and esoteric and incomprehensible <laughs> but also has like you know made some cool shit yeah um, probably most of the cool shit oh, the cool lots of the cool shit um, but we can we can afford that time to sit out on the fringes and get it wrong once in a while and deal with conspiracy theories and madness and weirdness and then feed back those changes slowly, slowly into society. He talks about how important that is to have those landscapes. Yeah, I want to jump back a little bit about to what you were saying about science and the, you know, that the discovery seems kind of weird and esoteric and rah, 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 and then we see it come into technology and people mm. see why there's a point to it. Yeah. And that's, science relies on funding in the same way that arts does essentially. Yes. Um, and that the the capacity to be able to um, quantify the mm. product is possible within some sciences more than others, but within science more than within the arts, which is, I would say, generally why people kind of, you know, they have a certain amount of respect. If they have a certain amount of respect for the arts, they maybe have slightly more for sciences. I'm talking about general people. Mm. I'm just hypothesising that that's kind of... You know, because because we're so indoctrinated into um, having to quantify yeah. quantify the value of things monetarily. I think it's also just a cultural shift, though, in a lot of ways. I think, like a cultural fact or facet, that we've been inculcated to believe that a physicist, you know, pootling around with equations might eventually lead might to eventually lead to the next X. Yeah. You know, scientific technological discovery. <laughs> the next person that broke your heart. Get it the next X. Yeah, got it. But we're not we're not incorporated in the same yeah. way to think somebody poodling around in an independent theatre show might come up with the next Netflix or the next yeah. great big blockbuster or the next you know, revolutionary cultural idea, or even just the next piece of work that brings a particular community 
really closely together in a really, really meaningful way. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, I mean, we we in art history we have that we look back and people go, oh, Andy Warhol, oh, oh yes, lots of money, all of the things. Mm. But at the time, you know, it was a bit what the fuck are you doing? Although he was kind of good at doing it at the time. Let's let's switch that up with Van Gogh because he died before he got to be cool. Yeah, but I also think sometimes... But he is part of the cool history of ears, for example, ears being made on rats, and him cutting his off. I love ears. One of my favourite parts of the body. Good. Also, on. also good for hearing. Yes. And putting your tongue inside when you want to make someone feel like either really hot or really weird, <laughs> depending on their personal taste. That's a, that's a good example of how things, things are contradictory and at both ends of something. I have this real um, excitement and obsession about how laughter often manifests as looking just like crying and screaming with pain and pleasure looks the same and so ears that's a good one yeah that's a good one licking yeah, yeah. ears let's write that down for the Put next that in a grant application <laughs> <laughs> but i think much of my creative exploration has to do with the sensation putting my tongue in, <laughs> other, my tongue people's in other people's ears, ears. <laughs> the thing that i wanted <laughs> I to can get a grant to literally anyway Anyone want to give me money to just go around experimenting, licking people's ears? Like, let me know. You can donate to the Patreon thing, or you could just deposit the money to me directly. Into your ear. Into <laughs> <laughs> I think that that thing about Andy Warhol, oh, he was this, you know, in the history of art, or, or Van Gogh, or whatever. I think a big part of our problem is that, that our frame of reference is often in... It's, it's like intra-artistic. Yeah. And that's why you should read Art as Therapy by Alan DeBottom, which is our next book podcast discussion. Yeah, should we just leave that one there then? Because I think we need, we have, there's a lot of stuff about how to extrapolate those arguments to extra artistic world. And yeah. also we've talked about almost now. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a true thing. Cool. I mean, I mean, there's heaps more we could say about safety. There was something that, there was a tangent that I wanted to go on way back at the beginning that I forgot about, but now I can't remember what it was. Oh. So, was it about the permanent revolution? No. Oh, I'm just flicking through here to pick chapter names. Was it about the coming of the future? The future's like, oh, I'm coming. <laughs> terrible. Was it about the agricultural revolution? The end of the sloth? No, it wasn't about the end of the sloth. Was it about no. the first pet? No. I started thinking about dogs so differently. I know, because they're not a thing. They're a made-up thing. They're a made-up thing that humans just fucking... Invented. Invented. I'm terrified of, like, the, oh, the... I'm terrified of the idea of, like, cyborgs and stuff like that. Because, you know, I think that's normal. Right? Anyway. Dogs are kind of like cyborgs. They're like animals that we've just manipulated to be a certain way. Also, so are all kind of, like, like so are cats. cows and... Oh, yeah, but and cats are gross, don't they, cats? Don't yeah, cats. but so are cows and so are sheep. Well, yeah, to a like, certain extent. Everything that yeah. we keep is like, is that? Not what it. Except for toy boys. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, but increasingly, you know, they are because plastic surgery, and soon you'll be able to pick the eye color of your baby. That's a whole ethical dilemma. Pick the eye color of your toy boy. I <laughs> uh, yes. Well, or also you can sugar just get baby. Con- What's it called get... in the straight world? Sugar babies. Sugar baby or daddy? I don't know. Yeah, I'm talking about the one that is owned, not the one that does own. I don't know, I can't afford that, so... Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's this great new show, I've only watched an episode and a half of it because it's talking about the future, so it scared me, so I had to stop because I went into a bit of an emotional turmoil. But it's with Annabelle Crabbe and Charlie Pickering, and they they put forward uh, a hypothesis for uh, something that could very well happen in the future, and this is the one of the ones that... And then they talk about how the people... There's people on the panel, and they respond to how they think they would respond to the eventuality of those things. And one of them is about the capacity to choose the genetics of your baby and you know mm. choose what it looks like and blah 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 and it's a very fascinating show which kind of goes along some of these similar lines and I recommend that you well I mean I watched an episode and a half so I can't really I would like to go back to it it makes me anxious but it's interesting so if you're like Eliza maybe only watch it when you have had a wine or are feeling least anxious mm. I have a lot of feelings <laughs> But if you're like me and those kind of stuffs really excite you, I'm definitely going to watch it. Those kind of stuffs, did you hear that? That was good. Mm. That was good Englishing. Good Englishing, Charlie. Did you know that our family went to the Senate to just watch 
recently just to because that's a thing that all Australians can do. You can just go in and have a little gander at the Senate. So they just It's took, easier if you live in Canberra. They let's, took let's be honest. Yeah. It's easier if you live in Canberra. They took advantage of that because they were in Canberra. They don't actually live in Canberra. They travelled from Perth to Canberra. Anyway, Pauline Hanson was was getting angry about the kids that went to the street to protest climate change because that's something that she didn't think was a good idea because naturally it is a good idea and she thinks that all the things that are a good idea are a bad idea because she is a quintessentially wrong human. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And... um, (laughs) Oh, my God. And things... brilliant, There are... (laughs) So good. (laughs) Things... People... Humans exist... uh, in binaries, I'm a good one. Pauline Hanson is a wrong one. Is a wrong one. Is that is that the binary? Good and wrong. Good and wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, good includes funny, sexy. Is literally the only <laughs> intelligent. Wow. I, it took for Charlie to like point to his head and make big eyebrow raising for me to pick intelligent. That's probably because I'm a woman, so I've been inculcated to think that my most valuable things is my body and my... Well, not really humour, that's a dude's thing. Anyway, um, maybe because Tina Fey, shot girlfriend, love ya. Um, she your crush for this episode? Yes! <laughs> I can't believe we haven't got to a... Well, obviously, Yuval Noah Harari is my crush for this episode. Yeah. And I would actually love to marry him because then my children could have the last name Harari. Although I have you... decided to adopt the matriarchy so my children are going to have the last name Sanders because that's my last name. Which came from Patriarch anyway, so... Also... They could be, they could be Harari Sanders. <laughs> it sounds like, Hooray! A Sanders! I just have to point out to you and say, Ha, suck it, we got one. He's Gay is a tree full of parrots. Yeah. yeah, obviously. Also, something I do really love about this book is that when he <coughs> does examples of things, more often than not, he uses she as the base instead of he. And it was so... Every single time I read it, I was like, Oh, uh, of course, this, this hypothetical hypothetical situation could be about a woman but reading it as she just made me so aware of the dominance of masculinity in language i think the other thing that's really great about the way he writes in this and in the and the subsequent two books is that wherever possible he uses a very very broad range of examples across ages genders you know obviously in this one's about history so he's talking specifically about the historical circumstances but he, especially in the later two books, he uses just such a broad range of examples from all across history and all different kinds of people. But when he really wants to cut deep, he tends to cut deep on his, like, and go and be really incisive about a concept. The example he tends to use tends to be one that he has a little bit of a lived experience of. Yeah. So he's kind of doing the inverse of what a lot of identity politics people do, which is like, I have this lived experience and thus it's valid in X, Y, and Z ways, which I think is useful in some contexts, but also can be really damaging and and Mm. create silos. Whereas what he's doing is going, this is generalizable to this negative thing, this challenging and complex and quite often bad thing about humanity is generalizable to the whole public, the the whole of humanity, but in specific ways. So I'm going to talk about the specific ways that affect my group, whether it be modern liberals, capitalists, Jewish people or gay people, he tends to bring up those four as the like, hmm. the ones to do the to do the deep dive, picking apart of the yeah. issues with, which, which forces you to be able to go. How would my group? I mean, my, my group, three yeah. of my groups are the same as three of his groups. So you well, know, that's like, convenient for you. You I'm don't have to lucky. do very much work, do you? But isn't that rare? Isn't that it is nice? rare. Yes, it's nice um, and it's rare. I didn't finish my story about Pauline Hanson. Oh yeah, no, tell <laughs> so, it because it's funny. So should we? Was, can, can we? Should we just go like copyright two thousand and eighteen? Daisy Sanders, Lisa Nakora, and Elizabeth Ganter? Well, no, it wasn't Elizabeth, it was Mum. Oh, sorry, Jane anyway, Allen. So Pauline Hansen was making a speech about how kids should stay in school and not go and protest about climate change and that, you know, where... What does inculcating mean? Because you've used it and now I've started using it, but I'm not 100% sure I'm using um, it correctly. Giving people beliefs and systems of belief based on the culture, culcate, culture, mm. based on the culture that exists around them and you know like the water they don't know they're swimming in of yeah, the culture. Right. so it's like it's different to indoctrination where you're beating it into their heads but mm. you just by virtue of being constantly surrounded by it it becomes your way of being in the world right that they're doing that to kids about climate change which is silly and then she said it's like they're out on the streets you know protesting and they can't they can't even english 
<laughs> that is a direct quote from Pauline Hansen that the children can't even English. Should I explain the joke? She can't English. That's not English. I don't know if you picked up on that. That's not that's not how you say that. You know like the cardinal rule of humour. You know how humour and duty were your two things that you apparently yeah, no, I didn't are age. really good at? No, 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 no. You know no, how no. one of the cardinal rules of humour is to not explain I the definitely joke. never posited. <laughs> I definitely never posited to be good at humour because that is terrifying. I think that the and scariest... And the thing that only men can do. Of course. Because women are not Of funny. course. The thing that is the scariest <laughs> thing in the whole wide world is stand-up comedy. When, when my show what castles... What sit-down comedy? <laughs> When they're easy, piece of cake, especially if you're on a rocking chair, because that's very calming. <laughs> when my show Castle was in the Wellington Fringe a few years ago, a friend of mine saw it in the program and she thought that it was the program for the comedy festival. And she's like, I saw you had a show in the comedy festival. And I swear to God, I had nervous sweats within like 10 seconds. I was like, oh no, did we accidentally put it in the comedy festival? Oh my God, people are going to come expecting to laugh. <laughs> Which is just the most horrible thing. That's funny, I was, you know how in RuPaul, Ru's always like, make me laugh, and the, like, you know, all the comedy channels, and they talk about it quite specifically, and, and the girls are like, I'm trying to be funny. I'm like, you know what the main way to not be funny is? Try to be Is funny. to be anything other than, you know, one of the best 20 stand comedians in the world, and to try really hard to be funny. Terrifying. Like, I don't know, that's a, that's a theatre thing, like, we're, we were always taught things are funny because they're funny, and you don't have to try to be funny, but I think comedians think of that differently. Oh, totally. It's a craft. It's a cra- it's just a craft that I know nothing about. Yeah. I mean as a director you like I now sculpt jokes and gags much more than I did when I was an actor. Maybe it's just the actor that's told that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Stephen Fry wrote a thesis, I think, on humour, which he says is a particularly unfunny topic to write about. <laughs> I love Stephen Fry. He's my crush for this episode that came about more organically than the other two. But it's real because I'm polyamorous in my crush for celebrities, but sadly not in my romantic life, which makes things difficult. Oh well, what are you going to do? That's humans for you. Maybe we should have Alicia on the podcast and have an episode about polyamory. Is she polyamorous? Yeah, she loves to talk about it. Oh, great. <laughs> How do you know if someone's polyamorous? Because they love to talk about it. I'll tell you. <laughs> Ad nauseum. <laughs> For weeks. They love to talk about polyamory. And I mean, I get it, you know. If you were a polyamorous vegan, how would you know which one to talk about? <laughs> Both. At the same time. <laughs> all the time. Just like how you can harmonise with yourself? No, no, no. Just like, you just say stuff that people can apply to both polyamory or veganism. <laughs> what have you got? I don't know, I'm not a comedian. <laughs> See? This is where a comedian would go away and write like 26 punchlines and then come back with a good one. But I don't have time for that. This is true. Well, also, you are learning about the process here. And the process is, we have the beginning of a moderate joke and not the ending. So <laughs> send, send in whatever you can think of for the end of that joke. And Crowdsourced humour. If you can just put in the comments your best punchline to lines that a polyamorous vegan would say that can apply to both those circumstances. I do think I have a bit of a skill, and I say this, that I've done it twice in my life. Not fixing them, just making them ever so slightly better. Do you remember when we thought we were going to have a business doing that? Only twice. It was called Joke Fixers. And then you say... Your humour consultants. Terrible idea. Also, there are people whose job that is who work on, like comedy shows but are not like yeah they're like the dramaturgs of comedy shows yeah so that's been fun sapiens final plug for it uh yuval noah harari smarter than us way way smarter so if you found <laughs> this conversation but also really easy to read just like we're really easy to listen to in exactly the same way are we it's different it's a different kind of easy to listen to this is the kind of easy to listen to that you want to you know, gouge your own eyes out. That's the kind of easy to listen to that you want to masturbate to. Neither of those things are true. <laughs> also, why would you gouge your eyes out when listening? And, uh, and a book <laughs> so that you easy. can keep listening. <laughs> I was talking about pleasurable things. I imagine that most people assume it's a pleasurable thing to gouge your eyes out. Okay. Anyway, look, he's... Eliza's jokes make no sense. <laughs> Hence why I'm terrified of comedy. Not a stand-up comedian. <laughs> Fully admitting it. It's a really great book. You should all definitely read it. It's very smart. And um, hopefully we have, you know, extrapolated it in some vaguely interesting ways or just encouraged you to have a read. As always, if you would like to support the work that we are doing both in podcasting and in the live performance arena, you can go to patreon.com slash house of sand uh, and become a patron of house of sand patronage can begin from as little as one dollar a month which would come to twelve dollars a year which is 
Less than three coffees. I was going to say it's your daily trip to and from work on the bus one day. Oh, wow. In a in an expensive city like Sydney. <laughs> it's two days on the bus in Wellington or Canberra. You could lose $12 out of your wallet and not even notice. Yeah, so you could do that. Or you could give us a cup of, cu- cup, a cup of coffee. <laughs> a cup of coffee a month, which is the, 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 the good old $3 a month one. That's always fun. But please do that so that we can continue to both eat and make podcasts and art because all of those things are important. And sometimes we eat while we're making podcasts, but you can't tell. Except that you could tell a couple of minutes ago when we were like, nom, 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 on Starburst. Yeah, but we were eating Starburst chews, so that's not something you can eat quietly and still enjoy it. That website That website address again is patreon.com slash house of sand. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Love you, miss you, really look forward. You always say miss you. you again. I know, it's because there's so many people. <laughs> I'm usually, usually when I talk to people, I, it's because they're on the other side of the world, and I miss them because I have lots of people that are not in the same place as me that I love and miss, so I just assume that I miss. Come on, let's be honest. The only people listening to this are going to be people that we like know directly, and I probably do miss them. Anyway, mm. love you, internet. And the people who are listening, you're okay too. Good Bye. <laughs> Too many tangents. That's our theme song now. It's raining on my face. And I'm inside the house under a concrete bit of roof. And so I am confused at why there is the rain upon my little face it must just be the wind you're supposed to be saying smart interesting things while I'm away not just adding a whole bunch of shit that I'm going to have to cut this is a musical interlude